how important it is that we come weekly to God's Word and say, God, teach us. Uh, teach us your truth so that we might think correctly concerning you and ourselves and the world in which we live. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25 is going to help us uh, with that on this particular Lord's Day. Let's give ourselves now to the reading of God's most holy word. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first river is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Hivilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord bless the preaching of it this morning. It has been my custom whenever we come to a new section in a book that we are studying, be it the Gospel of John or the book of Revelation, or here in Genesis, uh, to devote one sermon to the new section in order to make general, big-picture observations about the text before moving through the passage uh, more methodically in subsequent sermons. I think uh, this is an important thing to do. Many of the errors that are made in the interpretation of the Bible are made when people lose sight of the context of a particular 
passage, and when I say context, I do not only mean the sentences and paragraphs that come before and after the passage under consideration, but also the passage's place within the book and the book's place within the whole of Scripture. Uh, Critical to the proper interpretation of the Bible is this principle, Scripture interprets Scripture. We must allow the rest of Scripture and what it says to have an influence upon any given passage that we are considering. And so if we are to have any chance at all of interpreting Genesis 2, 4 through 25 correctly, we must pay careful attention not only to the words, sentences, and paragraphs found there, but also to its context, uh, both immediate and also canonical. And so what does the rest of Scripture say that might help us in understanding this passage correctly? This is a very important question to ask. I'm afraid that when people read Genesis 2, 4 and following, uh, many assume that it is myth. Uh, they think they are handling a folk tale, a fictional story with moral principles embedded uh, within it. And I am also afraid that uh, though there are some who might rightly believe that Genesis 2, 4 and following is true and historical, they assume that it is nothing more than a simple and direct retelling of the creation of the first man and woman. God made the man, he made the woman, and they were farmers. End of story is is the way they might approach this this passage. It's just factual. Uh, Genesis 2 and their interpretation simply tells the facts. But the truth is found somewhere in between these two extremes. Uh, Neither is Genesis 2 myth, what it says actually happened, nor is it a bare and plainly factual account of the creation of man. Instead, in Genesis 2, we find true history recounted in a literary style that is beautifully rich, complex, and ultimately illuminating. How do we know that Genesis 2 is more than just a bare, factual account of the creation of man? Well, uh, we can see this by examining the passage itself and also by paying careful attention to the rest of Scripture concerning the way that it interprets this particular text. A careful consideration of the passage itself reveals, for example, that there is a structure to it. I'm not going to linger here too long. I don't want to bore you with too many details. Uh, But it should be noticed that Genesis 2-4 through to the end of chapter 3 make up a unit. Here we are told all about the first man and woman and their relationship to God while in the garden that was in Eden. This section, 2-4 through 324, is made up of seven parts. You should be used to this now, right? Uh, There were seven days of creation told to us in Genesis 1. We studied the book of Revelation also, the very last book of the Bible, and that was a series of of sevens constantly uh, coming at us in in that book. Uh, But this passage here, this section 2, 4 through 324, is made up of seven parts, and these seven parts form a chiasm. Uh, They correspond to one another so that a point is made in the passage. Uh, They form a chiasm so that part 1 corresponds to part 7 and part 2 corresponds to part 6 and part 3 corresponds to part 5. And what takes center stage in this entire narrative is part 4. Part 4, I have not given you all the details here and explained to you what all the parts are. You can look at my sermon notes later and and see 
for yourself what the parts are and why they correspond to one another. But what do we find in part four of this, um, this section? What do we find at the point or pinnacle of this literary chiasm? What we find is this passage, Genesis 3, verses 6 through 8. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate and so she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden of the cool of the day. The Lord God walking in the garden of the, in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This, this, this portion of the narrative takes center stage if we pay careful attention to the literary structure of Genesis 2-4 on through to the end of, of chapter 3. And so clearly Genesis 2 is more than a bare, simple, and factual account of the creation of man. Instead, it is a beautifully rich and complex piece of literature which communicates truth to us, not only the bare facts, the deeper truths which lie behind those bare facts. What is God concerned to communicate to us in this section except that God placed man in the garden. He richly provided for all of his needs. He gave him a way forward to, to be faithful and to work and to eat of the tree of, the, of life. But what did man do? He fell. He sinned against his maker. When we consider how the rest of the scriptures view Genesis 2, we will find that there are many things of great importance contained within this text that are only briefly mentioned or alluded to. If you begin to read the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 and then you come to Genesis chapter 2, I will admit, chances are, you will miss most of it. But if you are faithful to read the whole of Scripture over and over again, all of a sudden you'll begin to see things in Genesis 2 that you did not see before because the rest of Scripture helps you to see the text correctly. Uh, these important truths are deposited in seed form in Genesis 2, if you will. And as we read on in the pages of Holy Scripture, we will watch those seeds develop into full-grown trees. And this is what I mean when I say that the story of Genesis 2 is, is rich. It is a story that little children can understand. At the same time, it is a story so packed full of meaning that the Christian can spend a lifetime pondering and applying the truths found within it. Today, I have five general observations to make concerning Genesis 2, 4 through 25. And I should warn you ahead of time uh, that points 3, 4, and 5 are very important points. They are very significant concepts theologically. And yet, I am going to rush through them today, providing very little support from the Scriptures uh, but I want you to rest assured that we will return to these points in the weeks to come to flesh them out more carefully. Today, my objective is simply to introduce these concepts to you, these truths to you, so that we can orient our minds and return to them and handle them more carefully in the weeks to come. So, five general observations concerning Genesis 2.4 through 25. First of all, notice that 2.4 marks the beginning of a new section of the book of Genesis. 2.4 marks the beginning of a new section of the book of Genesis. It's a fairly simple observation to make here. Actually, it's a very important observation to make if we are to handle the text of Scripture correctly. There we read, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. The phrase, These are the generations of, is very important in the book of Genesis. 
uh, this phrase, these are the generations of, or something very close to it, is actually found ten times in the book of Genesis, and it marks the transition of one section of the book to another. Uh, The book of Genesis is made up of ten parts, not including the prologue or the introduction of Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, which we have already studied. And so you have the prologue, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, which we have handled. And then you have ten parts to the book of Genesis. And each of those parts are introduced with this phrase, these are the generations of. Uh, This phrase appears in 2, 4, as we have just seen. Also in 5, 1, we uh, read, this is the book of the generations of Adam. 6, 9, these are the generations of Noah. 10, 1, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 11, 10, these are the generations of Shem. 11, 27, now these are the generations of Terah. 25, 12, these are the generations of Ishmael. These are the generations of Isaac in 25, 19. 36, 1, these are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. And then 37, 2, These are the generations of Jacob. And so notice that in each instance, the phrase, these are the generations of, functions as a heading to the section that follows. And in every instance but one, but the one that we are considering today, it is the name of some historical person that is listed after the phrase, these are the generations of. And so these are the generations of Adam, Noah, Terah, etc. What follows is either a genealogy, a listing of the descendants of that person, or a block of narrative uh, that focus in upon the descendants of that person, usually one particular individual. Uh, These are the people who came from so-and-so, or these are the people that so-and-so produced, is the idea. Uh, The book of Genesis is a book about beginnings, isn't it? Uh, And so you should be able to recognize now that it's not just a book about the beginnings of the cosmos. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It is that we learn where everything that is came from. But also, you should be able to see uh, that the book is about other kinds of beginnings too. Uh, It's a book of generations. It's a book filled with genealogies. Where did we come from as a people? The book is concerned to answer that question as well. Here in 2.4, you should notice that it is not a person who is named after the phrase, these are the generations of, but rather two things are mentioned. These are the generations of what? The heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. By the way, the word day here, though it is the same as the word day in Genesis 1, yom, it is, it is used as it is often used in Scripture, to refer to a period of time. It has already been established that the Lord God created in six days and rested on the seventh. Uh, But here, we are going back to consider the creation narrative more broadly or generally. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day or time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And what is described to us in the narrative that follows from Genesis 2-4 is the generation of the heavens and the earth, what what it is that the the heavens and the earth generated. God, whose throne is in heaven, forms and fashions or causes the earth to bring forth certain things. The earth gave birth to, if you will, plants, animals, and ultimately man by the creative hand of God. 
Look at verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and made and the man became a living creature. How, did, how was man made then? Well, we are told here uh, that God, the God of heaven, formed him from what? The dust of the ground. This is what the earth and the heavens generated. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Look at verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. What did the earth generate? Well, by the God of heaven, by His hand, it generated plants for food. Verse 19 Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Do you see it, therefore, what what is being emphasized here in Genesis uh, chapter 2? These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. This is what God produced and caused to come forth out of the ground. Secondly, notice that the creation account of Genesis 2 does not in any way compete with the creation account of chapter 1, but rather complements it, providing a different perspective and emphasis. Uh, it, is, it is common for scholars to claim as if what we have in Genesis 1 and 2 are two different creation accounts, as if they are competing with one another, right? As if they are at odds with one another. In fact, a theory that has been around for a long time, but I, I think it is actually waning in, in popularity, is that Genesis is nothing more than a collection of, of different sources, right? And that there was a, an editor who brought all those uh, sources together and compiled them into one, into one book. Now, there might have been some sources, I agree, that Moses used in order to compile the book of Genesis. But this theory in its radical form is that, well, the editor, whoever he was, they would say, uh, had one creation account, Genesis 1, and he had another, creation account number 2, and I suppose he just thought, let's keep them both, they're so good. And he puts them together, but yet they conflict with one another. And I'm thinking to myself, what a terrible editor (laughs) that was, you know, that he wouldn't smooth out the differences uh, between these two competing uh, narratives. They do not compete, though. They do not compete, but rather... Uh, Genesis 2 provides a different perspective and emphasis from the perspective and emphasis of Genesis chapter 1. You should be used to this whole idea by now, shouldn't you, after being in the book of Revelation so long? Do you remember how that book over and over again recapitulated, told the same story from a different vantage point? It's not a different story, one that is at odds with the one told before, but it's just a different perspective. The same sort of thing is going on here In Genesis 2, it has already been established that in the beginning God created the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. Over the course of six days, God brought the earthly realm into a form suitable for human habitation. Do you remember that? At first, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. But God did not leave it as such, for God created the world to be inhabited by man. In six days' time, God formed and fashioned the earth, creating first of all realms and then filling those realms with rulers or creature kings. This is review for you. Light was separated from darkness on day one, and then the sun, moon, and stars were created on day four to govern the day and the night. The sky and seas were created on day two when God separated the waters from the waters, but on day five, the seas and the sky were filled with fish and birds to have dominion 
over those realms. On day three, the land was formed. But listen carefully to Genesis 1, verses 9 through 13. On day three, land was formed. Dry land was formed. But listen carefully here and pay a special attention to the emphasis that is placed upon the vegetation that God made to spring up from the dry land on day three. This will become significant as we consider the creation account of Genesis chapter 2. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Dry land was made to appear. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together He called seas. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which there is their seed according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Did you hear the emphasis placed upon God producing plants? Dry land appeared, and God filled the dry land with vegetation. Why? Because man needs something to eat, doesn't he, if he is to survive. On day six, God created the land animals, and man to have dominion over the earth. So the realm that was created was earth, dry land, filled with vegetation. And then on day six, which corresponds to day three, the land animals and man were created to have dominion over the earth. Indeed, man was created to have dominion over all that God had made. So listen carefully now to Genesis 1, 24 through 31. And again, I want you to pay special attention to the emphasis upon vegetation. Maybe you didn't catch it when we were studying Genesis 1, but God is concerned to say something about vegetation. God created realms and rulers to govern those realms. He provided for their every need so that they would have food to eat. And man's responsibilities would have something to do with vegetation. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And so what was created on day six? Rulers to fill the realm of earth, animals and man. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, listen now, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every, every green plant for food and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. By the end of of Genesis 1, we are convinced that God is God Most High. He is the creator of heaven and earth. Everything that is has come from his hand. And man, being made in the image of God, is king on earth. He is not king as God is king, for for God is his maker and provider But he is to rule as a king under God's supreme authority. God provided for man's every need. He prepared a place for him. He provided food 
to sustain him. King Adam was to be fruitful. He was to multiply. He was to fill the earth. He was to subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What a wonderful story this is. I think sometimes we miss the significance of it, uh, some of the significance of it, because we're so far removed from agriculture in our culture. I was working around the house yesterday, and I don't think I ate breakfast, and I think it was getting later on in the day, and I hadn't eaten lunch either, and so I was starting to kind of feel, feel the hunger, you know, and probably getting a little cranky. Also, I was feeling a little weak. Uh, Lindsay's boss um, uh, once a year brings in these peaches for, for, for all of the staff and, and for the students. It's kind of sweet, right? Uh, no pun intended. Uh, but it, it, it's kind of sweet of her. Here she comes. I mean, just crates of peaches, and they're really, really good. And so students are walking around the campus, and they all have their peach. Uh, and, and the staff takes home a, crate, a box of them or something, you know. And so I went, and I got that peach, and I began to eat it. And I'm walking outside, and I have Genesis 1 and 2 in my mind. And I'm thinking, we're so far removed from, from the, the, the cultivation of these things. But my goodness, how good food is. Have you ever stopped to think what, what, a, what a marvelous and wonderful thing that God has made the world in such a way where here we are, living creatures, but He did not just create us. If, if He had just created us, we would not survive for a moment, but He, he, he provided for us everything we need to live, including food, the, the food that springs up from the ground, and, and He made it in such a way that it is varied. There's so many different types of food. And, and he made it in such a way that it tastes good to us. It's pleasant, not only to uh, the, the taste buds, but also to our sight. I mean, this peach, was, it was beautiful. And it, it, it tasted so good. And almost immediately I began to feel strengthened to go about whatever I was doing. You know, What an incredible thing this is. I, I mean, we read this passage and we hear about God creating man and his provision of vegetation or whatever. It's a marvelous thing. It's an incredible thing. God, as Lord Most High, created all things seen and unseen. Man is the pinnacle of His creation. But He did not just plop man down upon the barren earth at the beginning of day three. He, he put him on an earth that was well supplied, supplied to eat his every need, meet his every need. We should notice these things, brothers and sisters. I think we would be much more thankful towards God if we would notice these things. Thank you, Lord, for this food that you have so richly provided for us. Genesis 2 does not present a contrary account of creation to the one found in Genesis chapter 1, but a complementary account. The emphasis of Genesis 2 is different to the emphasis of chapter 1, but both are true. Notice that the creation accounts of Genesis 1 and 2 begin with problems. Notice that the creation account of Genesis 1 and 2 begin with problems. Do you remember that in Genesis 1, we were at first told that the earth was without form, it was void, and darkness was over the face of the waters, over the face of the deep. What was the solution to that problem? Why was it a problem? Because there's no way human beings could inhabit that sort of place. What was the solution? In the course of six days' time, God formed and fashioned the earth into a place suitable for human habitation. Genesis 2 begins with a different problem. The earth was not suitable for human habitation because there were no plants. There were no plants. 
Uh, Verse 5 of Genesis 2 takes us back to the time when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. In other words, Genesis 2.5 takes us back to the very beginning of day 3 of the creation narrative. The dry land had been formed, but there was no vegetation. There was no bush of the field in the land, which means that there were no plants growing naturally in the wild. There was no bush of the field in the land. There were no plants growing naturally in the wild. And neither had any small plant of the field sprung up, which means that there were no cultivated plants either. We could talk about the the plant world in that way, can't we? There are some plants that just grow in the hills um, naturally. And there are other plants that require cultivation. Neither were there. And why the lack of plants, both wild and cultivated? Two reasons are stated in verse 5. First of all, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And two, there was no man to work the ground. So here is the problem. No plants, wild nor cultivated. And the reason for this problem is that there was no rain and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Wild plants are able to grow when there is rain and cultivated plants are able to grow when there is man to till the soil, irrigate and cultivate. Farming is a fascinating thing to me, right? Uh, have you ever taken a plane, plane ride, you know, uh, to the east? Have you ever been astonished to see how much farmland there is? You, th- you think this is all growing in places where it would not naturally grow, but because man has worked so hard to, to bring irrigation, to cultivate, to till, to, to harvest, here, here all of this abundance of, of, uh, of food is, is present in this place, even on the other side of our mountain here. I mean, it is so arid. And yet there is farmland out there in that desert place. And so the absence of rain and the absence of man meant no vegetation, only barren earth. The earth was not suitable for human habitation. And and what was the solution to the problem here in Genesis 2? Well, two things. First of all, and this should not surprise us, God sent rain and he also created man to till the ground. Verse 6, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Do you see how the passage is working here? Problem, no vegetation, neither wild nor cultivated. Why? No rain, no man. Solution, God caused it to rain. God created man. And man's job, as we will see, is to work and to cultivate within the garden. Verse... Eight In verse 8, we are told that the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. In verse 15, we are told the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And so days 3 and 6 of the creation week are emphasized here in Genesis 2. They are viewed from a different perspective Uh, So much more could be said about this and will be said about this. Here I am simply making the point that the creation account of Genesis 2 does not in any way compete with the creation account of chapter 1, but it complements it providing a different perspective and emphasis. That is the point I am making now and I must move on from it. But do you see how the stories do not conflict with one another, but there is a different emphasis here in this text. This leads us to point 3 of the sermon. Notice that the focus of Genesis 2, 4 through 25 is God entering into covenant with the man that he had made. This is the focus of Genesis 2, 4 through 25. God entering into covenant 
with the man that he had made. In Genesis 1, it is clear that man owes worship and service to God by virtue of the fact that he is his creation. God is creator, man is creation. Therefore, man is to live in submission to God, to worship and serve him always. In Genesis 1, we learn that God offers rest to man. He offered rest to man, should he faithfully accomplish the work that God had assigned to him. But in Genesis 2, we actually see that a covenant is made. An agreement is made between God and man. The punishment of failing to follow through on the agreement is also communicated and a sign or a sacrament is given to visibly represent the covenant that has been made. And so Genesis 2 advances Genesis chapter 1 in this regard. It is emphasizing that a covenant was made with Adam in the garden. What is the agreement? Well, Adam was to walk faithfully before God. He was to fulfill his mission of filling the earth with the garden of God with faithful descendants. God had abundantly provided for all of man's needs. He could eat from any of the trees of the garden with the exception of one. Adam was to abstain from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In time, he would be allowed to eat from the tree of life. In short, what was Adam to do? He was to walk in humble and faithful submission to his maker. He was to complete his God-given task living perpetually in dependence upon the God who made him. What was the symbol or sacrament given to Adam concerning this covenant that was made? It was the tree of life and also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what would be the consequence of failing to keep his end of the agreement? Well, in the day that Adam ate of it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would surely die, Genesis 2.17. The word covenant does not appear in Genesis 2, but the elements of a covenant are there. And also, if we consider what the rest of the scriptures say about Genesis 2, it is clear that Adam, functioning as a representative for all of mankind, did enter into a covenant of works with God in the garden. One only has to look at Genesis 6.18, or Hosea 6.7, or Romans 5.12-19, and see that, that something happened in that garden. An agreement was made, a covenant of works was entered into between God and man. Now, the covenant of works was established In Genesis 2, Uh, but to quote Gerhardus Voss, uh, he says that this was nothing but an embodiment of the sabbatical principle established in Genesis 1. Had its probation been successful, then the sacramental Sabbath would have passed over into the reality it typified, and the entire subsequent course of the history of the human race would have been radically different. What is he saying here? Except for that in Genesis 1, man is created in the image of God. In the course of six days, God creates all things. The the Sabbath principle is given. And what is the Sabbath a picture of except eternal rest? If man will do his work faithfully in submission to God, he will enter into eternal rest. So what is the covenant of works, the more specific thing that was communicated to Adam in Genesis chapter 2, but it's an embodiment of that very principle. How would it be that man would enter into rest? Well, it would be by keeping the terms of this covenant that was made with him. He was to do his work faithfully, eating of all the trees of the garden that God had provided for him so richly. He could eat of any of them except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day that he ate of it, he would surely die. In due time, he was to eat of the tree of life, having accomplished his work. So we see that the Sabbath principle of Genesis 1, uh, 1, 1 through 2, 3, corresponds to the covenant of works that is made here in Genesis chapter 2. 
uh, that the emphasis of Genesis 2 is God in covenant with man could also be seen in the change of names used for God. In Genesis 1, the name for God is Elohim, simply God in, in our English translations. But notice that beginning with 2.4, the name used for God is Yahweh Elohim. It is Lord all in capitals, God. Lord God in our English translations. Elohim is a very generic name for God, and it is very fitting uh, to the emphasis of Genesis 1. God, the creator of all things seen unseen and unseen. He is God most high. He is there simply called Elohim. He is perhaps distant. He is high and lifted up. He is mighty, powerful, speaking all things into existence. But, But Yahweh is the personal, covenantal name for God. Uh, Throughout Scripture, Yahweh is the God of Israel. He is the God who is near. He is the God who makes and keeps covenants. He is the God who in Genesis 2 is seen breathing into Adam the breath of life, having formed him with his hands, as it were, out of the dust of the ground. He is the God who formed Eve from the side of Adam. Do you see the nearness of God being communicated here in Genesis chapter 2? Are they two different gods? Not at all. Uh, Here is the reason why he is called Yahweh Elohim. Elohim, the name for God used in Genesis 1, is is brought over into Genesis 2, but more specifically, this is the God of Israel. This is the God who makes covenants with his people. This is the God who is near to us. In Genesis 1, God is transcendent, high and lifted up. God might be viewed as someone far off in Genesis 1, but in Genesis chapter 2, God is near. He is imminent, near to us, near to His people. Uh, He is Yahweh Elohim. He is the God who enters into covenant with His people. 4. Notice that while in Genesis 1, we find a record of God creating the earth to function as a temple in which His glory would dwell. In Genesis 2, We have a record of God creating the holy of holies of this cosmic temple. Did anyone hear that? Are you able to follow along? I speak so rapidly sometimes. Genesis 1, we have a record of God creating the earth to function as a temple in which His glory would dwell. should not be a new concept to you. But in Genesis 2, we have a different emphasis. We have a record of God creating the holy of holies of this cosmic temple. This is a massively important concept, and it's one that will take some time to develop and prove in the future. Uh, This we will do in the weeks to come, if the Lord permits. But I simply wish to put the idea before you this morning. The earth was created to be filled with the glory of God. The earth was created to be a place where man would commune with God. This is what happens in temples, by the way. This is what happened in the Old Covenant temple. It was the place where the people of God would meet with their God. They would commune with Him. They would worship Him there. God would walk amongst them, being confined as it were, though God is not confined, to this temple, His presence being placed in that, in that, in that thing that we call a temple or tabernacle or sanctuary. The earth was created to be filled with the glory of God. It was created to be a place where man would commune with God. Read again the end of the book of Revelation to see that this is true. Do you remember that the whole earth will be filled with the glory of God in the new heavens and the new earth? The whole thing will be what? Temple. It will all be temple. God will be with His people and His people will be with Him and enjoy His immediate presence. The whole thing is temple at the end of time. When God planted the garden in Eden and placed the man there, it was to function as the most holy place in God's cosmic temple. I I am not saying that there was a temple made of stone in Eden. Uh, 
but that the garden itself was a temple or sanctuary where God's glory dwelt and where man was able to commune with the God who had made him. Isn't this a beautiful concept? We'll prove it to be true, I think, in the weeks to come by seeing what the rest of the scriptures have to say about Genesis 2. But, but we have to understand this. The garden wasn't just a lush place, a nice place to live with lots of food. Was it that? Yes, it was that. But more than that, it was a temple. It was a sanctuary where man could enjoy his God and where God would walk with the man who he had created. Uh, This all becomes very clear when we consider the tabernacle and later the temple of Israel and when we begin to compare it to Eden. Uh, Later on in the writings of Moses, we will hear all about the construction of the tabernacle and temple. And if we pay very careful attention to to the way that it is built... Uh, the instructions that God gave to Moses for its construction, we will see that the tabernacle and later the temple were meant to function as miniature replicas of the cosmos. That is what they are. They are the cosmos, the heavens and the earth, the seas and the land, in miniature form. They are meant to communicate man's approach to God, uh, giving a picture of uh, the, the, the heavens and the earth, and the holy of holies and the tabernacle and temple were crafted to remind the worshiper of Eden, the garden paradise of God. This will have to be proven at another time. For now consider that God is said to have walked in the garden with man. Genesis 3.8. Do you remember that? I, I did actually read that text earlier. It's not in the sermon text for today, but it was read. God walked with man. In the garden. God's presence was there. It was a sanctuary where man and God enjoyed communion. And consider that the very same language is used many times in the Old Testament to describe the temple of Israel, the tabernacle of Israel. It was the place where God walked with his people. I will make my dwelling, my tabernacle among you, God says to Israel. And my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you. And I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And here is what I mean when I say we must pay attention to context. Not just immediate, what does Genesis 1 say and what does Genesis 3 say, but the canonical context. What does the rest of Scripture say? Certainly, if we are careful readers of Holy Scripture, moving through the books of Moses, we'll we'll make the connection. God walked with Adam in the garden. And when the temple was to be constructed, when the tabernacle was to be made, it was so that God must, could walk amongst His people under the Old Covenant. Indeed, the Garden of Eden was a temple, a sanctuary, so that God and man could commune with one another. Five, and lastly, notice that Adam's task with Eve as his helpmate was to function as a priest in this temple to guard and to keep it working towards its universal expansion. Listen to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. A little side note here. Notice that Adam was created outside of the garden, wasn't he, by God? But he was taken and put within the garden, which was in Eden, in this region called Eden. It would be a mistake to assume that when God commanded Adam to work and keep the garden, he was calling him to simply be a farmer, that is to misinterpret the text. Was he to be a farmer? Yes, there was an aspect of that indeed in his work. But in fact, when these verbs appear together in other passages of Scripture, 
uh, the context is priestly. When these verbs, work and keep, appear together in other passages of Scripture, the context is priestly. Look, uh, listen to, for example, uh, the way uh, that the work of the priests and the Levites of the temple is described in Numbers 18.2 and following. Uh, to Aaron it was said, And with you bring your brothers also, the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, that they may join you and minister to you, while you and your sons with you are before the tent of the testimony. They shall keep guard over you and over the whole tent. What was the job of the priests? What was the job of the Levites? It was to keep guard and to watch over the whole tent, but shall but shall not come near to the vessels of the sanctuary or the altar, lest they die and you die. They shall join you and keep guard over the tent of meeting for all the service of the tent, and no outsider shall come near you. And you shall keep guard over the sanctuary and over the altar, that there may never again be wrath on the people of Israel. What was the job of the old covenant priests when they worked in the temple or tabernacle? It was to guard it. It was to keep that place, to keep evil things out, to protect its sanctity, to protect its holiness. And and here I am wanting you to make this connection that the same language used to describe the work of the priest in the temple of Israel is used to describe the work of Adam in Genesis chapter 2. He was not simply a farmer in the garden which God planted in Eden, but he was a priest. His task was to promote the worship of God in that place. His task was to work in the garden and to keep it. He was to preserve it as holy. He was to drive away all intruders. You're beginning to see how this proper interpretation of Genesis 2 begins to set us up for what happens in Genesis chapter 3. He failed, not as a farmer, but he failed as a priest before his God. In fact, when all is considered, Adam was a prophet, priest, and king in the garden. He was to have a king-like dominion over all creation under God's authority. He was to promote the worship of God as a priest, preserving the sanctity of the garden sanctuary. And he was to proclaim God's law as a prophet, urging others, his descendants, to obey it in that garden paradise. Adam was the first prophet, priest, and king. When Genesis 2 is understood in this way, by way of conclusion... Uh, then we are ready to adequately comprehend the rest of Scripture. When Adam sinned, he broke the covenant of works. When Adam sinned, he brought upon himself, as well as all of his descendants, including you and me, the curse of the covenant. Adam and Eve were expelled, not just from a beautiful and lush garden, but from the sanctuary of God and from His presence. When Adam allowed the serpent to deceive, he failed not as a farmer but as a priest. He failed to defend the temple of God from all intruders. He failed to preserve its sanctity. Israel's temple, when we come and read of it, was a replica and miniature of the cosmos in the Garden of Eden. It communicated to the people of Israel and to all of the people of God that a way to commune with God was still open by God's grace. And when Christ appeared, He came as the second Adam, the prophet, priest, and king, He, through His perfect obedience, entered into the most holy place, clearing the way for all who have faith in Him. And what did He secure, brothers and sisters? What did He earn except the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells? And when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead and to make all things new, all will become temple. All will be holy of holies. All who are in Christ will enjoy the presence of God forevermore. And so I must ask, brothers and sisters, uh, with all of this teaching in mind, and indeed a lot of information was given to you uh, this morning, are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? 
or are you in Adam? Christ is the perfect and faithful high priest, whereas Adam is the failed priest. Christ is able to bring us God to, to God, whereas Adam himself and all who are in him were pushed out of that garden, having sinned against his maker. In Adam there is only judgment and death. Are you in Christ? The way to be in Christ is not by birth, but is by faith in Him. When we have faith in Christ, when we believe upon Him, we are united to Him. We find ourselves not under the covenant of works, but in the covenant of grace of which He is head, of which He is mediator. We are either in Adam or we are in Christ. We are born into this world in Adam. We are in His sin. We are guilty by by virtue of our birth, and then we do ourselves go on to commit actual sins. We are in Adam by birth, but we are in Christ by faith. There is only one way, brothers and sisters, for us to have a right relationship with God and to enjoy communion with Him in this life and in the life to come. That is to be found in Christ Jesus our Lord, who is the second Adam, our great and faithful high priest, who accomplished the work that God had given to Him faithfully and perfectly to the very end. He kept the covenant of works. He has earned for us life eternal. Let us be found in Him today, tomorrow, and to the very end, or until the Lord returns. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word, which is so rich. Uh, Do help us to understand it. And I pray for my brothers and sisters who this morning have had so much dumped upon them, Lord. But as we look at Genesis 2, may we see it as truth. May we also see it as so much more than just a children's story concerning the first man and woman and their work as farmers. Lord, may we see that here we have a foundation for a proper and biblical view of the world. God, I pray that we would also come in due time to understand the severity of Adam's sin. Lord, may we see how horrible it was for him to rebel against you. Lord, and yet we have done the same thing ourselves, we being in Adam. We have done the same thing ourselves, Lord. We have not loved you as we should. We do not worship you as we should. We go our own way. We decide for ourselves so often what is right and what is wrong when we should live in perpetual submission to you. Lord, have mercy on us. We thank you for Christ Jesus, the only hope of life everlasting. Father, I do pray for those who do not yet know you, that you would draw them to yourself. There might even be some here who think they know you, but they have been only engaging in external forms of of religious practice. Lord, I pray that you would call them to you from the heart. Make them aware of their sin. Make them aware of your great provision for that sin. May they understand it truly and walk faithfully with you from this day forward, believing upon Christ Jesus alone for the forgiveness of their sins. It's in His name that all, all of God's people pray. Amen.